we did not need any prompting or anything. Like we just, I had money, I wanted to invest it. And so I bought property. And that's what, in, you know, and I'm sure Chris would say the same thing. He wanted to do it, so he just did it. All right, welcome to The Climb. This is Bob Werma with my co-host, Mr. Michael Moore. Today, we're joined by Drew Brenneman. Drew started his first business at the age of 14 and launched a highly successful internet business, all while in high school. Shortly thereafter, purchased his first rental property when he was 20 years old. Had a little stint on HGTV, which we'll dive into. Ended up at the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Business with a focus in real estate and urban land economics. After graduating, spent time with three national real estate development firms to get some experience. And then in 2005, founded Brenneman Capital, co-founded the Blackhawk Investment Group in 2008. And finally, Dwell, a Chicago-based real estate investment and property management group in 2019. Drew, welcome to The Climb. Great. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. There's a lot there and probably a lot of places we're going to want to go. So would love if you could just kind of start from the beginning. Where are you from? And tell us a little bit about your upbringing and, and then kind of bring us up to current state. Yeah, sounds good. No, appreciate you guys having me on. I just listened to the episode with Matt Johnson. Just kind of refresh myself. What do you guys usually talk about? Love that episode. And a year and a half ago, I listened to the episode with Chris Powers that you guys did. So I've actually... I guess, long time listener here and there. So yeah, all the stuff you mentioned, I mean, it's really just around real estate investing, all those different brands. I mean, I it's really just been offshoots of different just sort of partnerships that I've started with investors or people who want to participate more heavily in, in the deals from like a workload or partnership standpoint. But yeah, I mean, got started really like in, in high school, I started this internet business, just selling items in video games. So I was, my friends are playing like Diablo 2 and EverQuest and these whatever they're called multiplayer role-playing games or something and I didn't really like care about those games like I like playing sports video games or just other games but people were they told me they're selling their stuff for real money on eBay and so then then I got interested in what uh, <laughs> what they were up to so from like my sophomore year of high school to freshman year of college I I just was buying and selling items. Like I figured out what the market was for an item in the game. And then I would just resell it for more. I remember just trying it out, thinking like, what can I get for like 20 bucks for items? And I saw something selling for five or 10 that normally should sell for 20 plus. I bought it and then resold it and did that like 10,000 times more. And all of a sudden had some money and tried to figure out what to do with it. And so then as a teenager, I started reading just all the books that probably most people, I don't know, read when they're like in their 30s or 40s, like Rich Dad, Poor Dad and Intelligent Investor. And so like those I was reading as like a 16 year old. And I really liked how real estate investing sounded where you're combining really like an investment and a part time business. And then that and there are so many advantages to real estate that I really liked. There's a ton of tax advantages. You get cash flow. You can get high returns because you're leveraging the deal when you're borrowing money to buy the property. And then, you know, like, and it's not really correlated with other investments. So it's going to perform differently than the stock market and other things that you would invest in. So basically, I've just started doing that when I was a teenager. So I bought my first deal when I was 19. And then I've just been going ever since. I'm 37 now. So it's, it's weird to think I've been doing it almost 20 years. So Drew, did you, I just, starting and having that kind of 
vision or curiosity that early on, I think is not, that's certainly an outlier, not the norm, right? So did, were your parents real entrepreneurial or you had a, like what, what piqued that curiosity? Yeah. I mean, both, both my parents were teachers. So no, there wasn't any family business or entrepreneurs really. My dad's dad was an entrepreneur. He was in like the automotive sales industry. And then he went on to like start some restaurant and bars in Northern Wisconsin. And then, but I actually never met him. He, he died before I was alive. So I would like hear like, oh, you're just like Lou. And, but I've never, never really had any influence from him other than hearing about it. But I mean, a lot of it, I think comes down to your mindset and like what my parents did do a good job of is they're, I'd say risk avoidance. So like if a lot of the ideas they would, you know, they wouldn't say like, okay, for sure you should do that. They would be like, you know, they'll, they'll explain kind of how it will go wrong, but then don't tell you like, definitely don't do it. Where, I mean, a lot of parents or folks will be like, I think that isn't going to work and you can't do it or we'll try to, there weren't really like a lot of like limiting beliefs. I mean, my dad often say stuff like you create your own reality and just like things where you're not. So I guess a lot of it came down to mindset where even as a teenager, I don't know why. I just always thought I could do it. I looked around, I'd see, you know, other people where maybe they were older, but they didn't have any special skills or experience. I didn't think it was just they were maybe 40 and it took them 15 years to save up their down payment or something. And then they got started. And talk about too, like maybe growing up, was it you, brothers, sisters, just you and your parents? Like, tell us a little bit about your story of growing up. Yeah. And then too, I didn't answer where, where I'm from, I guess, either when you asked that. So, so yeah, I'm from the Milwaukee area. So I grew up in a city called Waukesha, Wisconsin. So I was, you know, 40 minutes, maybe outside of Milwaukee, let's call it. And then was pretty rural area. You know, my neighbors down the street and to the right would have been a farm, you know, kind of thing. So when I was a kid thinking about real estate, it was like building like subdivisions or that was kind of the stuff I saw. But yeah, so I have one sister. She's uh, two and a half years younger than me. She lives in Austin, Texas now, and then my parents are still in Wisconsin. But yeah, so grew up there, and then I went to UW-Madison for college. And then those jobs I had while I was buying deals on the side, I guess, those the first one was in Minneapolis, and then the next one was in Rockford, Illinois. And then I moved to Chicago, where I am now. So, Well, and the reason I think it's just helpful to understand where folks are from, and I mean, like Michael's point before, a lot of times there's this like, idea that, hey, you went and bought your first property. It was, hey, my parents gave me a bunch of money or you came from a bunch of money. And and I love hearing the stories of people that are growing up and kind of what you said earlier, what your dad would say, like you create your own reality, right? Like you can go and do this no matter where you're from. You just got to kind of have the, a lot of that drive to want to get there and go and do it. Right. Yeah. And in terms of the locations, I mean, these weren't, these haven't like for real estate, the strongest markets, you know, either like where they've been fine, but yeah, it would have been easier, sure, if I had like some family money and was grew up in like Florida or somewhere that's been booming my whole life. Right, so. right. <laughs> and Drew, you so. said you're how old now? 37. Okay, so I guess what, 19, 20 years ago, like, how did the process go of qualifying for the loan? Like, did the banker look at you like, dude, where's your ID and what are you doing in the bank? Or like, talk about that process. Yeah. Well, one funny thing too is I didn't I didn't own a car when I was in college, but I had four properties at one point, you know, so it was like funny where 
you'd go to the property on a, on a moped. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that there's just no, there's no parking really in Madison, uh, going there. If you want to get to class, you either got to walk, ride a bike or a moped, but yeah, I mean, and I had a documentable income cause I had the internet business. So not that you needed it. You know, this was in 2005 when I bought my first property and then I bought two that year, then one in 2006, one in 2007. And yeah, so no, I had income that I could point to from the business on my tax return. And then on the first ones to get a lower rate, my parents co-signed on that. And then the other ones I just got approved on my own, where the first one it was like a $200,000 loan, plus or minus. So that wasn't that big. So they were fine co-signing on that. But then some of the other deals I bought were six, $700,000 loans. And so that they didn't want to be on those, understandably. What was the first deal, Drew? Like what type of asset did you buy? A duplex. So a two unit for 220000 And I didn't know what any of the terms were at the time, but like a lot of people in real estate like to say, I want a value add deal, which means they can add value to the property. That's And so the rents were really low and these things all trade based on like what they bring in for income. And so I raised the rents, made it worth more. I sold it a year later for 270 It was off and going. You know, we, you mentioned uh, our mutual friend, Chris Powers, earlier, and I think he got his real estate itch buying rental properties to start out. Like for our young listeners looking for, you know, knowledge and direction, do you recommend that route as like a gateway or an entry into the business? I love Chris. I've talked to him uh, once on the phone, love his podcast. He's great. Yeah, I know he, yeah, he got started out buying, I think, houses around TCU and then now got into a lot of bigger, better industrial stuff. But yeah, I mean, what's interesting and whether it's me or Chris, a lot of times you hear these stories and there wasn't like, we did not need any prompting or anything. Like we just, I had money, I wanted to invest it. And so I bought property and that's what, in you know, and I'm sure Chris would say the same thing. He wanted to do it. So he just did it. So yeah, I would, I'd recommend that's a good way to get started. I mean, where, especially if you have a job, you can get a, th- through FHA, a three and a half percent down loan. So, I mean, if you, you would need to save up some money to do this, but even if you just have a three and a half percent down payment and then you live in the property, it's required in it, but then you can get started. And yeah, anyone who wants to get started, I mean, that's what I would recommend is just get, you know, you need to figure out how it works, I guess, in terms of like the buying process a little and how these things are valued. But on a duplex, it's not that complicated. And then I have a podcast too. And one guy who just started on his own, I had on Mike Henning and he, he's been doing it part-time for quite a while. And when I asked him that same question, he said, everyone eventually buys a house. So I figured I could too. I thought that was like the best way to say it. So just say what Matt said. I think it's interesting because when you were that young, you said you want to invest that money. Right. And I feel like a lot of times at that age, you just want to spend that money. So you had a totally different mindset than what I would say a lot of people do at that age. Yeah. And I did realize that at that time. And I do think that's, you know, some of that I think came from my parents as well. Because being teachers, you don't squander your money. It's hard to accumulate any money. So then if you do, you need to save and invest it. So there wasn't, we weren't like a big, Uh, like spending family, I'd say like if somebody, if somehow we were just given like as a family, a hundred grand, which 
like never happened. But let's say if it did, my parents would have just invested it. They wouldn't have been like, oh, perfect. Now I'm going to buy a Range Rover. Like that's not how we were raised. So I've always thought that I still have a 10 year old car. I have 200 plus million of property that I'm obviously, I, I guess I don't, I own a percentage of all that percentage of, of it and a percentage of the profits, but that's, yeah, I still am like, I think invest first. And going back, we talked a little bit about my class question on, you know, some of our younger, or I won't even say younger, but newer investors into real estate. So knowing what you know now and what you've probably learned over the years of doing this now for 17 years, as you think about new investors, what would you tell new investors as they look to get into the real estate space? Any, any kind of words of wisdom there? Yeah, plenty. Like I think on the first deal, like just keep it simple where I'm actually amazed. I see people pull these deals off, but I see people who maybe they'll be on like, they'll be, they'll somehow get like a following online, uh, just kind of talking about real estate. And then they'll raise like a ton of money from a bunch of different investors and buy like a hundred unit property that needs to be rehabbed as their first deal. And they, it's some, seems to me like a miracle they pull it off. And cause I'm doing that now, but that's like, it's not that easy. So yeah, I would definitely start small where, and then just focus on the cash flow. And your first deal, even if you read a, like, so for my first deal, like I had read, I don't know, five to 10 books on real estate investing. And then I bought my first deal. And at that point, I feel like I literally knew nothing compared to what I know now. I didn't know anything except for like how to value the property, let's say. And even that, I didn't understand any of the nuance with valuing it. And I did fine. But it was what I think has helped me early on. And even now, for the most part, I focus on the the cash flow. So if you're brand new, maybe you don't know, you know, what, how people are valuing these exactly or anything about construction, but you should be able to look around at the other properties that are for rent and then figure out what you should rent for. And then talk to whoever you need to talk to your insurance agent and, and look up the property tax bill and really understand the expenses. So what I did was I, I thought my mindset, and so this will be helpful on the first deal was after all the bills, I make like 200 or 250 bucks a month, including me living in it. So worst case, I overpay for it and I screw everything up and the building has all these problems, let's say, but then I just keep it and I'm going to make 250 plus a month and pay the loan down. And like, that doesn't seem like such a bad worst case scenario. So yeah, don't start out with a renovation deal or some hundred unit thing where you're going to have everybody, you know, invest in it as your first deal. Cause there's going to be a lot of mistakes on the first ones and like, just focus on understanding the cash flow and then your worst case scenario. So you just hang on to it. So fix straight debt and understand your rent and expenses the most, I'd say. Drew, you bring up some interesting points that I want to kind of dive in on, you know, jumping in at, at an early age and, and not necessarily knowing all the details, but having the the grit, desire, curiosity, uh, etc. You know, almost 20 years later, like, are there certain things about real estate investing that just don't change? Meaning, obviously, economic conditions can change and interest rates go way up or tax subsidies or or some kind of government program like a historical tax credit if you're going to get into you know old buildings and bringing them back to life can sort of change the the numbers but 
with 20 plus, you know, almost 20 years in doing this, like, what are the constants? I think what people nowadays, they overcomplicate things. You know, when I, those first four deals I bought in Madison, my underwriting or a lot of people buying their first deal, like, I don't know how to use Excel or how to underwrite. I was writing it out on paper. I didn't know how to use Excel either. Like I, when I said like figure out the rents and expenses, I did that, but it was on paper. Like I would have a calculator, I'd add up what the rents were, but then I'd write it down on paper. Like I didn't know how to use Excel and be like, okay, I'll calculate it. Then I'll run this this model, and then I've done a linear regression on the rents and discounted cash flow on the on the value here. I didn't. I've never heard of any of those words when I was buying my first deal. People were doing these deals before computers were even invented, and so I would think like. What came to mind when you're asking that is, I mean, real estate is really, it's really simple sometimes. And so you don't need to overcomplicate it. And just like that first deal I was talking about, I know I'd make money every month. And then worst case, I just keep it. And then in terms of things where, and I think all the kind of things that popped in my head as you're asking it just revolve around sort of not overcomplicating it. Like right now, rates are, interest rates are higher than they were before. And in a lot of markets, the properties, there's no debt on them, they would, let's say, yield 5% a year. So like if you bought the property all cash, you'd make 5% a year, let's say, on a lot of multifamily assets. And rates are higher than that. And so it's a scary time, potentially. But if you you just kind of keep it simple in your head like that, that kind of avoids like, okay, I made this fancy model, and then this is going to happen by year three. And it's like, just think about it simply. It makes 5% right now, you're borrowing at six, it doesn't your, your debt's actually knocking your yield down. So you need to have a plan to get that above six or you're just betting on interest rates. So I guess I don't, I mean, I would just say keeping things simple and then, yeah, not much has really changed the whole time I've been doing it. You know, interest rates go up and down and values right now are really high compared to when I started. But I mean, it's all, it's just kind of the same, same thing. And then I would say just, you know, get in front of the trends. I guess that's, that would be the only thing that's changed. You know, when I started, Retail and office were more in favor than they are now as product types. And in some newer, more like niche ones have emerged where a lot of people are investing in self-storage now where that was not as much talked about in 2005. Got it. Before I forget, we got to ask you, talk to us about this HGTV thing. And are there any videos we can go find you on HGTV? Yeah, my friend, <laughs> I don't know how he did it. He was able to pull the recording off of the TV and I have one. I have it. Um, oh, that's great. Yeah. So that, yeah, that was just, I know it's funny. I'm like really not, uh, I know I started a podcast now, so it doesn't make sense to even say this, but I'm really not like very promotional or even outgoing naturally. So, but that thing, like, so I didn't, when I was buying these properties, I was, it never crossed my mind to be like, oh, I should like tell the newspaper and get in it or try to get on TV. But the Home and Garden Channel, they came, they were doing a show where it was what, what do you get for the money in different markets across the country? And they were doing Madison, Wisconsin, and they reached out to the Keller Williams office and said, do you guys have any interesting clients that would be good for this show? And my realtor is like, yeah, I just sold a, a house to a teenager. <laughs> so they, they had, uh, so I was the, the quarter million dollar house on that episode. And so, I mean, it wasn't, you know, they signed for like a minute or and a half or something. So it was just, was interesting doing it. But yeah, it was, it was simple. They just, just show the place you bought and say a couple things like what your plan is, what you're up to. So I, I always laugh at those shows and you watch some of them now and it's like, you know, 
I'm a I'm a hairdresser and you know, my my wife is a school teacher and our budget is three and a half million dollars. Yeah. You're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> this is wild. I'm in the wrong yeah. business. <laughs> I know. I yeah, I know. I love that too. There was some meme or something going around where it's like what you said, it but like a beekeeper and they're looking for like a eight million dollar house in the Bay Area. Like, <laughs> Bob, it's because those hairdressers have a lot of clients like you that pay eighty dollars to have their hair look that good. That's right. And you gotta go four times a week to keep it this tight, Michael. Yeah. I'm telling you. Nice. You know, Drew, I, I love that that sentiment though of, of keep it simple. The limited real estate investments that I've done over the course of of being interested in that and understanding how it works and value creation and am I going to roll the profits of this one into the next deal and you know the the, the beautiful 1031 aspect out there, etc. I agree. I mean, where I get, and a lot of of the time, because, and you mentioned this earlier, like I still don't know how to use Excel very well. So it's all like very simplistic and I understand the market and trends and what's going on. And a lot of times it's more betting on, on the horse, the person bringing the deal, you know, than the actual deal itself. Like, do I believe in this person and is his or hers ability to to deliver on what they're promising. But when you get into the back pages of the deck and the, you know, promote to the GP and the waterfall gets like super complicated. It's like, okay, wait, but why this wasn't this complicated on the last year? Like, what about this one needs more pages in the back of the deck to make it a good deal for you? Right. So maybe comment a little bit on keeping it simple. And is that an investment strategy that you carried forward at at Brenneman Capital? Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, I guess to give you some more on my, I can go through more like in detail too, kind of once I got past those four deals. But so it, I bought my first four deals in Madison and then I had moved to Minnesota after I graduated for for a, uh, my first job working for a multifamily developer. And they, I basically invested all my money at that point, wanted to learn how like the big dogs do it was my thought. And so what someone working there an intern, he knew, I told him my story and he had said, let's, let's go meet with my dad. Maybe he'd want to buy some like property with us. And again, like with the t- teacher parents, I have no idea what this guy could invest. Maybe we're talking about like 10 grand. I have no clue. So I printed out a bunch of deals and in this meeting, they really liked a $3 million deal. And I was quite surprised because that's, you know, like a million dollar down payment on a commercial deal, which I told them that. And they're like, yeah, we know. And we ended up buying that one of those deals that I had printed out. And since then, we bought like a hundred plus million dollars of property together, the three of us. And to actually get to the answer to your question, we kept it simple on that. Like there was no fancy like here's like the set of fees we're going to charge, and then there's going to be a preferred return, and then we're going to do this multi-tier waterfall. Which, if people aren't familiar with like private equity or real estate, this is just how people allocate like the profits from the deal. Uh, instead of doing all that, we just, I think we had talked about that, like, hey, people do that. But then instead, we just kept it simple. And we just split just straight up, like the dad gets 1%, the son gets one percentage, the son gets another percentage, and I get a percentage. When you sell or refi, like you get your money back, like that you put in. So you put in the money, we do the work, and we just split. And then that served us really well, because a lot of those deals we've never sold. So then again, like the to talk about incentives for a second with some of these structures that are most common where there'd be 
you get a fee for buying the deal, you get a fee for running it, you get a fee for selling it. And this is money that the sponsor makes regardless of if the deal even makes any money. So then they have an incentive potentially just to push deals along and collect fees. But I guess if you do that too long, then you're not going to be in business because your return track record will, will be poor. Then there's a preferred return. So you need to make 6 or 8% or whatever it is. And then you start getting a cut of the deal and you need to return the capital. So basically what that all leads to is, uh, hey, the sponsor wants to sell potentially early a good deal because they want uh, they want to start getting some other fee. So like I think a lot of that comes down to incentives and then what's the person like. So one thing for me, I've explained that like the structure we like these these different structures that I've done where it's the more simple one or just kind of the traditional one. And it's a lot of times people are surprised that like we we did that because it's just it's so easy. And then they ask questions where they're like, what about if the deal, you know, if the deal was really poorly and you still got a percentage where you never would hit the preferred return and there's pluses and minuses, I guess, but I've always just thought like I'm putting the investor first. And so that's kind of never, there's some different nuances that let's say someone might ask about, let's call it. And then it's like, it's just those issues never came up, I guess, not to get too in the weeds. Like, cause I just, we're not, no one's thinking like that. Like we want to have the investors happy and do well. You mentioned working for a larger group. Talk to us about that. Like what did, what did you glean from that that, helped probably move you into the next to start your own firm. Yeah. And one thing too that and I almost feel like I need to give a disclaimer for why I got a job if you're wired like me, because that's another thing people will ask about where I had a phone call on Monday with somebody where they want a real estate broker who I really like. He's got somebody who he wanted me to talk to. He's going to want to go out on his own, start a business, uh, start investing in real estate like basically start like a similar thing to Brandeman Capital. And though it crossed my mind when he's like, do you want to do this call? I did do the call. But the first thing I thought was, if you need to do a call, it's probably not right for you. Like where you don't need to... The actual call, he had some questions around the nuances of like actually some of the more difficult points of how to put these deals together. So he's like well on his way. But similar thing where I just... Like I just never wanted to have a job, just to be blunt. Like I, this whole thing has been totally natural for me. So it's like, oh, how did you do this? It's like, well, I don't know. I just saw people doing it and figured I'm like, we're all about as smart as each other. Like we can do it. And plenty of people are way smarter than me doing real estate and plenty aren't. So I just thought it's fine. Like I'll be able to do it and I'd rather do this, you know, on my own. And so, yeah, working that first job, that was all about learning they actually do really complex deals that companies called Dominium. They have 30,000 apartments, I believe, but they're, they're growing really fast. Could be way more than that by now. And they mostly do tax credit, uh, so affordable housing deals. So like the funding sources, it's not simple like my deals where I just reach out to people I know are on our investor list and they invest. They, they're going and they're winning these competitive application process to get tax credits from the states or the federal government and then selling them to banks or Berkshire Hathaway or whoever and then turning that into actual cash that's then part of their down payment. So I walked into a place that was, but it was really entrepreneurial and doing really complicated deals. So I was only there for a year, but I learned a ton. There's another non-real estate lesson, I'd say, kind of right after that, that then let me, I'll just hop to. So I switched working at Dominium to another company after only being at Dominium for a year, 
just really mostly because of the just the, the pay. It wasn't there wasn't a reason, and I wasn't paid like a small amount at Dominium for being out of school for a year. But I basically got an offer where, you know, it's almost like double the pay. But all this is, it's not, but it's not a lot of money. Like in, as a, I was like approaching 40 where I was getting paid like 50 or 60 grand at Dominium. And I was going to like, depending on the bonus, 75 to 100 at the next place. But I learned a lot less at the next company where I might, I worked there for two and a half years. I feel like I probably learned about the same amount at each. And so in retrospect, from like a learning standpoint, when people are early in their career, I think I would focus more about getting to the spot you want to get into. So let's say you want to be in real estate investments and be on the acquisition side, but you have one offer and it's like 50 grand to start out at an acquisitions place and they they buy a type of property you don't really care about. Maybe you want to do multifamily, but they're buying shopping centers. and Or you could go work and be still in real estate, but maybe something different, like you'd be on the debt side or in property management, but you'd be paid way more, let's say. I would definitely every time advise people just get to the spot you want to be in. So take that acquisitions job. Now you have acquisitions experience. And in two or three years, you can just, you know, you're, you have two or three years experience of where you want to be. And then you can get the actual job or position you want later. But I oftentimes sort of talking to people, I'm saying like, get to the spot you want to be and then worry about paying other stuff later. It's great advice because I think a lot of times you come out of school, you see it. I mean, I had this conversation with my cousins and they're younger and they're like, well, I want to go make a bunch of money and come out and they get this offer. And then you look up in three, four, five years and it's like, well, I want to do something on my own. And like, well, but now I'm making this money. And it starts to get more and more challenging. If you have that conviction early, it's like, just jump and go and do it. Because what's the worst can happen, right? I mean, you're 22 years old, whatever. Yeah. Or even within your example, like if whatever you really want to be doing, like get to the spot of doing that, where if you wanted to be doing something, but then you could be an investment banker and make double the money. But when you're 22, like double the money, is not going to be a lot of money when you're 40, you know? So then you're getting like your experience that's not relevant to what you want to do for 50 grand, where when you're 40, if you're, if you're doing well, like that becomes a lot easier to make. Yeah. So that's, that's spot on what you're talking about. You went to this other spot, you're there two, two and a half years. Then you jump to starting your own or how, how did that kind of all shake out? Yeah, really what I, what I did was I was always on my own to some extent is where, so I bought those properties when I was in college and then I start working in Minnesota, but then I meet that family and we start buying deals. I'll call it on the side of working at Dominium. We weren't buying deals where it was competing with them. So I, I never really saw it as a problem where our first six deals in Minnesota were commercial ones. So shopping centers and office building and industrial deal in multifamily was all that Dominium did. So we weren't, there wasn't really any overlap. And then the next place. And so really like in that, that brand is called Blackhawk, which when you mentioned that in the intro, like we started that together, the, the three of us. And then we started that together, the three of us. And then I did that on, I would call it on the side for through, let's call it three and a half years. And then at that point I went full-time with Blackhawk and the Brendan Capital brand, that's kind of like been always like my personal brand. So I like kind of in the 
in the background are those first four deals. And now what I'm doing most of the deals out of is like a brand. But yeah, really. So then that's just another learning lesson there too, that like you don't need, it's really difficult to start uh, like just like a cold start. I'd say like if, if the story would be, okay, I worked at those places for three years and then I met those guys and then I quit my job that day. And then we started looking for deals like you're putting a lot more pressure on yourself financially and just getting this thing to work. So what I did was I had in, and it's, it's was fortunate we were doing different types of deals because this wouldn't work if we were just doing the exact same thing as the companies I worked at. But when I quit my job and this would be in 2012, I had or in 2011, I had two of the deals in Madison still I owned. And then we had five deals in Minnesota and then with a sixth one on the way. So at that point, I didn't really need the income from the job anymore. And it was like, it just was like, it's getting in the way of the, of the next deal. So like, that's the time to quit then. So, and yeah, and that was like a, a difficult time, you know, where if you explain to people what you were doing, where it's just like, what was your life like for those three years? I I basically only worked. I bought $30 million of property on the side. Like we, you find the deal, you're making a phone call on your lunch break while you're driving to lunch to the broker or your lender, then you go home and you read the leases and you're doing the, the due diligence on the property. You're doing the purchase contract. You're reading that on a Saturday. And it's, you know, so I just, I, for three years, that's, I, that's all I did. And it's, it's a little different now. <laughs> Not that different though. I'm pretty much still working a ton. Didn't really feel like work, especially as for your, yourself on the nights and weekends. But that would be sort of another thing where if, even if it's not real estate, just any kind of business thing, if you just kind of cold start it and go, okay, I quit. Now I'm going to start it. You know, those first deals, I didn't get paid. I don't think for, for a while on them. So if I would have had no money basically coming in that first year, or second year. So that's, that's how I was able to do it. Drew, talk about some of the sacrifices you made. You said I only worked for, you know, for those three years, like I worked. So you worked your ass off. Anything you look back on and you say, I sacrifice this or maybe I would have done this a little bit different? Yeah, that's a good question on the what to do different piece where, yeah, I made a, it made a lot of sacrifices, but they felt, I can't really think of something in the, where I'm like, wow, I really wish I didn't do that. Where even I just, when I quit my job, I moved to my parents' house for a year. Uh, so in 2012, I lived there just in the basement where just to further save money. I had money saved up and I wanted to extend my runway more. I knew we had kind of invested what that Minnesota guy wanted to invest at that point. And so I, I was able to take a bunch of trips just internationally and stuff. So I was like, I'll just save money and keep all my stuff at my parents' house. And I went to like 10 or so countries in that year. It was great. And so in terms of for, so I just, I've done a lot of things like that, like, oh, just move my, live in my parents' house when I'm 26 for a year, which like a lot of people would, that's like their nightmare, but it just felt really natural. So I don't, I don't know if there's anything where I'm like, oh, I wish I didn't do that, to be honest, where I just, I felt like it was needed and I don't mind making the, the sacrifice. I like really working ahead, if you will, too. So then it, let's say we have like a contract that we are going to send out. Like I like to always be like one step ahead, you know, if you think of it like chess or whatever, like I'm always trying to be a couple moves ahead and that's hard to do unless you're going to potentially put in more time. So if we have a contract, I mean, first of all, I would like our attorney to draft it. So then it's got already everything we want in it from the get go. If you are 
someone else's contract, everything you want, it's like a change that then's like, you know, bright red or whatever color it's going to be in. But then it'd be like, no, we got the contract. I need to read it this weekend and then we'll flip it out on Monday. I don't know. There's really not, not anything I can think of. I mean, I have a, a five-year-old son now. I mean, when he was born, I had a, I took like three months off for um, paternity leave, let's call it, where I really I didn't do too too much during that work-wise. I mean, I was able, I've been able to do still what I what I want. I'd say all of these realizations or the ability to pause for a second and say, you know, I need to make this sacrifice or I need to make the birth of my son a priority. You know, to me shows like this wisdom, right? And I, I think about the people that I know in in real estate and investing and and creation of of value. And the ones that are really good seem to have this ability to back to your your analogy of chess playing or seeing three steps ahead. Like they've got this. And I don't know if they're just lucky and they were born with it, or, and this is kind of getting to my question, or you hone that skill over time, but how do you develop the ability to see three or four steps ahead in the real estate space? Because to your point, it is a very crowded space. It's incredibly competitive. It doesn't take long at all if you're interested in real estate to have 10 deals on your desk to potentially invest in if you want to. So talk to us a little bit about how you've honed that ability to see a couple of steps ahead and and bring that back to your your investor base. Yeah, I guess really I I'm not sure what I've done to to hone it. I've just always thought that it's it's really important. So I've just seen a high value in it. So I guess that's what I'd encourage if someone is like, what would be the the tip? It's like, this is important and treat it as such. Like you're going to do a deal. There's going to be this contract for purchasing it or whatever the important thing you're working on is and, and treat it like that. Like think, okay, if we ask for this, what are they going to do? Then how's that going to look? And like actually like treat it like it's important and take the time to to do that. And then the other thing that I've done, maybe that's a little different is like a lot of people talk about long-term thinking, but um, we're actually doing it and living it in some of our deals. Like a lot of folks, like for them, like owning a property for one to three years is normal. I mean, a lot of our stuff we own for seven plus. That first deal I was talking about that we printed out in that meeting, I mean, we still own it. That was like 14 years ago. Um, we bought that and we're just going to keep it. So... And yet, like, there's a payday if we sell it, but it's in everyone's best interest, I feel like, to keep it. So that's what we're doing. Tell me more about that philosophy, because I think that at least some of the stuff I seem to see and come across these days, a lot of them are that quick flip, let's go make some money. So t- talk a little bit more about your philosophy on the longer term hold. So a lot of people, right, It's it looks great to have a high IRR, you know, which is like a time-weighted return metric. But if you think about how did like a lot of these, let's say families get, get wealthy in real estate, they weren't going and whatever, like putting in the newspaper, we just did a 50 IRR, you know, nine month hold. Like they, they bought a property in New York or Chicago or LA and they've owned it forever. They bought it for, you know, I mean, I like, it's this, there's someone that I bought a deal off of in Chicago where his dad bought like 
30 or 40 duplexes at Lincoln Park, which is one of the nicest neighborhoods here for like 50 grand each back in like the 60s and 70s when it was like, you know, dangerous. And yeah, and I know I know another guy who bought all the retail around the Whole Foods there in Lincoln Park when that was like where like the riffraff was hanging out. And they just, they've just hung on to those. They still own those deals. So they've owned those for whatever, 40 years, these duplexes. And he probably could have bought those, you know, for, he bought them for, let's call it 50 grand each. And maybe he could have sold them for 60 or 70 real quick and made a, like a big return, you know, would have doubled his money if he would have sold those. But now he's, you know, whatever, 50 times his money because those are all like million dollar duplexes in that neighborhood. So a lot of the money's made in in the waiting. You know, that's not in, in a lot of investments. And uh, especially in real estate, it's expensive to transact. You know, you're paying your broker, you're paying transfer taxes, you're paying income taxes. There's a lot of cost to transact. And so if you have a, a setup where people are in the deal longer, like you're going to make a lot more money doing that. Maybe your time-weighted return would be lower because instead of having that big pop in a year or two, it's seven or 10 years later. But the amount of money you make is a lot more significant. And I've even, I kind of always knew this was the case, but we actually have then calculated it now. But where comparing just like a, a strong 10-year hold versus like three back-to-back to back three year holds, you know, how does that look? And you need to have string together like three pretty amazing deals to get after you pay all the the cost to buy and sell, then buy and sell again, and then sell like to be to be comparable. So I, I think it's a, a business that rewards the long term thinking. And again, even the structure we did in that first deal, a lot of times it's interesting to just say I just I didn't charge any fees. I just took a percent of the profits. And you always in this, you get a wide range of responses where it's like, wow, I'm surprised you did that. Like you didn't get any money up front. And it's like, no, but like this is this percentage is worth really a lot if I'm just patient. And so, um, you know, or other people will say like, oh, I'm surprised he gave that percentage to you guys. It's fine with that. But it's, well, but we weren't taking any fees or anything. We were just totally like shoulder to shoulder in that. If this thing makes no money, then we shouldn't make any either. And where you're signed up for like, pro rata losses as well. If this thing sucks and loses money, then we'll add money like at our share. So mm-hmm. I love that. I love your, you said a lot of money is made in the waiting and that, that really just stuck with me of, I don't, you know, I think a lot of society today doesn't think in that way. It's like, give me those quick hits. You're going to make, you know, to your point, every deck that I've seen come across my plate, like the first thing is like, look at this IR that we've returned on these past seven deals and we did it in 18 months you know like okay well what about all the other ones that you're not showing me right now too i'd like to have an idea what some of those look like yeah or it's yeah and you can i mean you can still generate high returns it's just like well don't be trading in and out of these so long i mean like if somebody i mean like this especially the last you know 15 years the real estate market's been on a great run you would have probably been better off just keep everything just try to figure out a way to buy more so Drew, where do you think we go you know as a as a society maybe out 10 15 20 years when you look at the difference between like home ownership versus renting right and home ownership sounds really good it's the american dream the government wants you to do it you know etc cetera, etc cetera. 
which I totally agree with. But at the same time, depending on where you are economically in that cycle of your life, if you're just getting started or you know, you've had some large event occur in your life, sort of midstream or whatever, home ownership has a lot of expenses to it as well maintenance, taxes, et cetera. So as we think about, you know, economically where we're going as a nation, does does renting and multifamily grab more market share over time? Does it pull back? Like where, where do you see that going? It's going to grab more. That's one of the things we like about it. The home ownership rate's been declining, just like a, a long-term trend now. And I think I, I still see a lot of value in home ownership, so there's no doubt that's that's not going anywhere and still will be still be like a dream for most. I think what's what's different is there's gonna there's a lot of people where they're just never gonna be in the position to buy a home. They're just never gonna be able to save up enough. I mean, we're getting into more of like a lot more just people that are very wealthy and then people that are just never they're just scratching to get by. And so like that, I think like a big factor. And then also the flexibility where, you know, people really value flexibility today. I'm sure, you know, anybody you guys are hiring, like they want to know what, what's the work from home deal here. And, um, you know, so then, and they would apply that to where they live where, okay, I'm in Chicago now, but maybe in uh, two years I want to live in Miami, you know, that's, so then you wouldn't buy a home now, whereas in the old days, let's call it, you would, you know, you would have tried to buy a condo or something in Chicago to make some money. If you're going to be here for a short period of time or you really value that flexibility, you're not going to do it. And then if you're around my age, like you basically saw everybody get burned with home ownership. So then you don't in, you know, 2008. So you you view it differently than someone who just saw homes go up from whatever the beginning of time to 2008 and pretty much never drop, you know, do you have just a different lens where I know my dad, when he, he and my mom, they bought a house in the early 1970s when interest rates were like 12 or something. And they, and dad's like, if I didn't buy a house that year, I never could have for homes. Everything was going up so fast. So it was like a scarcity kind of mindset, like risk a fear of loss almost in his mind where today it's the opposite. It's like, these things, I don't, I don't know if I really even need this. I might be moving and it costs a lot to buy and sell. Then I'm locked down. And I think it's going to continue declining, not, you know, not to like a insane extreme, but where there's people are really value flexibility. And then a lot of people view it differently now as well. I loved you. You're hearing the same thing from your dad, like his interest rates are going up. My dad's like, when I bought my first house, I'm like, dad, I've heard this story enough times. Like you boys don't understand. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Back when college was a, a thousand a semester or something. Right. <laughs> and he walked up uphill both ways to school, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I, I mean, I do think that's interesting. Like my wife and I were just talking about that a couple of weeks ago. We've got a 17-year-old, so she's a junior. She's got one more year and then she's off to college, likely will be out of state. And then our youngest will be in ninth grade next year, so four more years. And so you like the light at the end of the tunnel of, you know, empty nesters is like right there. And it's like, you know, at that point, if they're both out of state, and let's just say there's five or six states in between our two daughters to travel to see them, you know, if they still want to see us at that point, like, does it make sense to, you know, to have this home that we've built in Fort Worth or at that point, we'll have owned it six, seven, eight years. 
you know, more have a, a lock and leave type scenario where it's just easy for us to to hit pause on life in Fort Worth and travel anywhere we want to without the the maintenance and you know. Texas doesn't have a state income tax, which is awesome, but our tax rate on our homes is insanely high. So the you know the long term cost of ownership is something you really got to think about if you're only spending two or three days a week there or four days a week, right? So yeah, I I, I agree with you. I think it's going to be interesting to, I mean, we'll have you back way before then, but you know, over the next 10, 20 years to really see what, you know, is home ownership as important as it used to be, say, for our parents' generation? Or is it flexibility? Flexibility wins the day, and then that's what people want. You know, you, you could have a, a second or even a, a third place to stay in the places that you go to most. Yeah. And I think people put a lot more value today, you know, if whether like if it's employee working somewhere. I mean, they put a lot of value on like, what's the company's culture like, or what's like the mission here, you know, and you can kind of follow that through to everything where like, if that person's, you know, main goal would be, I want to be able to be, have the flexibility, like in there, in your situation, they're going to, they're going to say, yeah, let me downsize to a condo and, you know, and then be, have a lot more flexibility or right. Like one of those lock and leave neighborhoods where it's like gated or set up where people aren't there all year. I mean, we, like you, Drew, I live, I mean, I live basically down the street from you, but when my wife and I were getting our place, we're like, we don't, what else do we need? We have an area we live in and we got a bedroom. Like, we don't need all this stuff because to your point, Michael, like we want to go travel. We want to go do, you know, go to Park City for a month and spend a month there. And, you know, we have more flexibility to be able to go do those things because we don't have a $10,000 mortgage here in a big house with a bunch of rooms that we don't go into. Yeah. No. And I think too, and depending on what people were doing for work before, where if you had to show up to a factory or to this one office every day, like you couldn't go to park city for a month. Like now, if, if you're able to do that with your job, then yeah, why not have your, your housing situation match? So. Drew, you, you mentioned it a couple of times, and I want to make sure we we capture it you know, to promote what you're doing as well. But tell us about your podcast. Yeah. So about a year ago, I started a podcast called the Rise and Invest podcast. I'm going to rename it to the Brenneman Blueprint. So depending on when this comes out, it'll be under one of those two names. Or you can, I'm sure if you type me into whatever podcast thing that'll come right up. But yeah, it's a real estate investing podcast and it's for active investors and passive investors. And so passive investors would be somebody who just wants to not actually be the one doing the the day-to-day running of the deal. They just want to be an investor in somebody else's deal. And uh, so really it's for both audiences where like, and I kind of cover both in my day-to-day where I'm an active investor, but then our investors. So if anyone wants to invest in our deals, they they can as well. For that, you can just go to our website, brenneman.com. So B as in boy, R-E-N-E-M-A-N. And then there's plenty you can learn to make yourself like a, a better uh, passive investor. So like we try to get we try to get into that. And that's something in the new year I'm going to spend more more time on getting more into the passive investor content. Or we've had a lot of active investors, real estate entrepreneurs so far in like the first year. So... Oh, that's awesome. No, and and we'll put all that, we'll put everything in the show notes too. So it's there for folks to go and find. 
Drew, I got another question for you. I think we've been we've been throwing some softballs your way, so I'm gonna throw a curveball now. You know, you're with with a podcast out there, and you know, obviously, a, you know, strong base of of investors and, and your philosophy. It, it's known, right? You're, you've got publications out there, and, and people know kind of who you are and how you do it. Tell us, tell us something that people don't know about Drew. Good question. I think, I mean, the first thing that came to mind is, and I don't know if this is already out there, but like, so we talked about all the things that, like, I've a lot of the things that I've done work wise, and also, like, there's just a lot of other things that I did and tried, but they weren't as much of like a long-term thing. Like, so my f- real first business, I guess when you said age 14 or whatever the bio said, the real first business was I was a magician <laughs> and I've done other things like along the way. Like I, at a wedding um, where my aunt and uncle got married, there was a magician there and he taught me some tricks and I liked it and started, just kind of ran with it, started doing kids parties. And, and then also in college, I, I was you know, it wasn't enough, I guess, to be doing those real estate deals and going to school. I also started a vending machine route that I later sold. And then I also did some network marketing at the same time. You know, so I just, I've just done a lot of different things. And so I, I just always, I know it's like the recurring, the, the big hit, if you will, was the selling those video game pieces and then, then real estate. But yeah, I would just I'd never been afraid to start something, but also not afraid to wind it down too. So where vending machines or magic wasn't gonna wasn't <laughs> wasn't my wasn't my calling so yeah and then i think too like you know i guess one thing to, like where just kind of to bring the story to current where uh so i had mentioned that the uh maybe just talk about resiliency for a second like the the family that i met in minnesota we it was me the the intern his name was brian and then his dad jim so we started, we bought property together 2008 till through now, but in, in 2019, actually Brian passed away. So he was two years younger than me. And so I thought we would just be doing Blackhawk just basically forever, the three of us. And so, and so like you, I guess you'd never know how quick something can change, you know, like where that just kind of threw everything kind of up and like you thought you had one plan and now it's like totally different. So we're that brand we went from thinking that somewhere just going to keep growing to now kind of almost like a little more on on autopilot. Like we didn't sell all the deals or anything, but then we're not like in aggressive buy mode like we were before. So I had to make a pivot, and then that was more about pushing harder on the Brenman Capital brand. and And it's it, it's crazy how things work out. I mean, probably in two thousand eighteen, we had maybe a hundred million of property, and it's in the last three four years I've bought more than that. So I've more than doubled it just where now I kind of got whatever your feet thrown to the fire back against the wall a little more again. And, and so it's, it's interesting, just crazy how things work out sometimes. So, and just kind of, I, I don't know, I didn't feel sorry for myself or, or anybody really. We just kind of, I just kept going. So Michael, you want to give him a, give him a wrap up question? Your usual. Drew's listened, so he might have a, something prepared for us already. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll see here. So, Drew, you know, in thinking about this podcast and why Bob and I are passionate about it, right? The climb, crossroads, and defining moments. And we've certainly captured those, and, and you certainly had them uh, in your career thus far. And we definitely look forward to having you back and hearing what, uh, you know, what multifamily looks like on the horizon in the future. So, one of the questions that we asked towards the end of the podcast 
is there's the saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know. But we flip it around and say, it's not who you know, but who knows you. And so in thinking about this podcast, capturing your story, and I'll, I'll let you pick because I think you, you've got different avenues we could take this question. But if this podcast is meant to capture your story and, and get people to really know you, you know, whether it's, it's your family or your investors or the people that you work with, like, what do you want people to know about you? Yeah, that uh, I, I don't have a prepared answer. <laughs> you know, the, the, the episode I listened to, the, the question, yeah, that uh, I think you had asked was, who do you want to know you? And of course, I was going to say my, my son. But I mean, yeah, I think pe- really what I feel like I sort of have stood for this whole time is like, you know, really just like I, I wasn't afraid to go for it. And I wasn't afraid to do the hard work. I enjoyed doing this. So it's never felt like I was taking a big gamble. It's interesting. People often ask, like, are you like stressed out doing this? Where, cause my, so my dad, he was a woodworking automotive teacher. So he thinks about like the like physical aspects of these deals. Like, so I like literally own thousands of toilets and thousands of doors and just like so much stuff could go wrong. I know ne- I'd never think about it. Like we, that's like included in the budget for your deal. Like there's repairs, there's CapEx, there's same thing with the loans or the leases ending where I owe nine figures of debt that I, and I'm responsible for and like, but I, but we have revenue. So I guess where I'd say, yeah, not afraid to being, to work hard and to go for it. I just never was wired to just be sitting there just working like a, like a job. It just didn't appeal to me. I'd rather just go for it and, just the same mindset. I saw Mark Cuban say this on some Instagram video where it was him on Shark Tank, where he's like, I'd rather make 50 grand a year working 80 hours a week than 100 grand a year working 40 at a job. And uh, sorry, I screwed it up a little. The 50 grand was working for himself, obviously. So yeah, I've had that that mindset just the whole way through. And I think too, just kind of one thing that came up while you're asking the question, like it's a very important to, to network, get your name out there where I, you know, I meet this, investor and it seems so almost maybe easy as I'm explaining the story and then I was able to meet other folks who invest in deals. But I've said my I've explained my story this same thing like thousands of times. And it's worked out for in terms of finding like a partner or investor capital, you know, like a a dozen times. You know, like where it's not and I had a you know, like a, a couple big hits, like those like career changing event, like meeting that family in Minnesota. But it was, you know, yeah, it's important to get your story out there and to, to network. So it is, you're, I, I love the question here at the end. So, well, look, that, that work ethic and, and drive and just ability to believe in yourself, like we, we need a lot more of that in, in our people coming up and, you know, people mid career and, and even towards the end. You got to have that, that grit and drive. And I, I firmly believe in what you say. Like if, Truly, if you love what you do, you know, and you're passionate about it and you're interested in it, A, people are going to be attracted to that. And, and B, I think most importantly, you're not really working. You know, it's, you're doing what you were put on this earth to do, I think. So thank you for sharing that with us. And this has been an awesome podcast. We'd love to have you back. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it, guys. Awesome. Thanks, Drew. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Climb. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing. And if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast, 
feel free to share this with them. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.